Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. Stories help us work out for ourselves how we're going to live our lives, you know, how we're going to make moral choices. The world of writing books is a pretty interesting and sometimes bizarre world. One of the sort of unspoken rules is that you either write fiction or you write nonfiction, and you build a following, you build a readership and a career around one of those things. But as a general rule, it's brutally hard to switch from one to the other because they're completely different. And if you do that, you take a huge risk at your audience, your readership, and your publisher abandoning you. Well, that's exactly what this week's guest, Amy Stewart, has done. Coming up, she actually built a tremendous career as an internationally best-selling and award-winning author, writing very often about gardening and botany and bugs and plants. And in fact, she's even named uh, by Popular Mechanics as having one of the 18 strangest gardens in the world featuring poison plants. But with her newest book, Girl Waits with Gun, she's decided to make a really big change. She stumbled upon a story researching her last book that she thought just has to be told. And she developed it into historical fiction. Now, a lot of people would say, but your audience doesn't know you as that, and you're taking a really big risk by doing that. So I wanted to have that conversation with Amy. What's it like to be in sort of like the middle of that, to be writing this and just really following a voice saying, this is the thing that I have to write now, and I don't know how it's going to be received. 
So that's just one of the things that we dive into, um, along with just her beautiful career, her deep, mad passion for the craft of storytelling and language and writing, and what drives her and what will continue to move her as she grows her career. I'm Jonathan Fields. This is Good Life Project. I'm so excited to just jam with you a little bit, and and, uh, I have so many questions just about you and your path, your journey, your story, however you want to phrase it. You grew up in Texas, Arlington, Texas. Yes, I have yeah. no like, so I know pieces of Texas. I know you know like, <laughs> the, and the only truth I like I have friends from the Hill Country, and but the only no. place I've actually been is Austin, which everybody yes. tells me actually is really not Texas. <laughs> right. What's Arlington like? It's just suburbs. It's between Dallas and Fort Worth. Okay. And it's it's very boring suburban. But you know, if uh, if you're like me, you know, you, you're you're in a family where mom works in Fort Worth and dad works in Dallas, then you live in Arlington. So uh, it's just a it's just a, a freeway decision, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Um, you develop an interest in plants, bugs, gardens. Was this? And I'm always curious when somebody seems to have this mad passion for something so much so that it it ends up becoming a huge focus of your life, and you write about it, you do it. Where does this take root for you? Well, you know, really the mad passion for me was writing. So, you know, I always wanted to be a writer. Ah. Um, I wanted to be a writer when I was five. So I, but I didn't know what that meant in terms of a career. Um, my dad's a musician. So I grew up with somebody who was pursuing their art and kind of not really making much of a living at right, it. Right. And he toured with Doc Severinsen or something like that. Oh, right? that's right. Yeah. He did. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you know a few things. Eh, just one or two. <laughs> yeah. He was in Doc's road band. So Doc would tape the Tonight Show with his band in Burbank, and yeah. then he'd get on a plane and go meet the road band in Tahoe or wherever they were. And so Dad was part of the road band. Oh, how much fun was that? Yeah. So yeah. Are, there, are there stories of uh, you know, <laughs> mad stories from that, that the, era? I actually, well, the, what kind of stories do you, do, does a musician tell his daughter, really, is the question. <laughs> right. I, it's like the 2% that maybe yeah, you can. Yeah, I have heard a few, but you know, right. Doc could actually be listening to this podcast, uh-huh. so... Uh, so anyway, um, no, but I always wanted to be a writer. And when I finally got out of college, you know, I didn't understand how you could become a writer. I mean, I went off to University of Texas with the idea of majoring in English because mm. that was my thing. But nobody ever said to me, well, here's what you do. You major in English. You write some short stories or some poems. You get them published in literary journals. This yeah. is what a literary journal is. Here's what one looks like. And then you go and you get an MFA. And your thesis for your MFA is a book, and you try to get that published. Right. And meanwhile, if you can't get that published, you are now qualified to teach English to college students, mm-hmm. and that'll be your job. Like, no one ever explained that to me. So I didn't understand where my paycheck was going to come from the week I got out of college. Mm. And I had grown up kind of broke, you know, not dirt poor, but we were very paycheck to paycheck, and that's not fun. Yeah. So I wanted a job. I wanted health insurance. Um, so I didn't know how to become a writer. So the way my first book came about is that when I was in Austin, um, I read the Austin Chronicle, which is like the Village Voice, you Mm -hmm. know, our alternative weekly in Austin. And there was a guy writing for the Austin Chronicle under the name Petaluma Pete. Obviously, (laughs) obviously not his real name. And he was writing. Although in Austin, you really never never know know that his mother could have named him that. Um, But he was writing about food in a really interesting way. Petaluma Pete was a fictional character that he created who had a very dramatic personal life and a lot of upheaval and a lot of things happening all the time, but that all came back to food somehow or a restaurant in Austin somehow. And it was so creative and interesting. And finally it came out, it was revealed that the writer of this Petaluma Pete column was Ed Ward. 
who is the rock critic on Fresh Air. You'll hear, oh, no kidding. You'll hear Edward. So he was the music critic for the yeah. Austin Chronicle at the time and has gone on since to be a bit, I think he still lives in Berlin. He moved to Berlin at one point. He's kind of a big deal in the music world, but he had this little passion for food and he created this fictional persona who wrote about food. Mm. And I just thought, oh, you can do that? That's an option? Like, uh-huh. I, it, it never even occurred to me. So I moved to Santa Cruz after college and got my first grown-up job. And um, there wasn't much going on in my life, but I was planning a garden for the first time. And I thought, well, I could write about this, and maybe I could do not exactly what Petaluma Pete did, but maybe I can write about gardening in a way that's more personal and yeah. interesting. And that became my first book. And really, every book just came from the one before it. You can find... If you read my first book, From the Ground Up, you'll find enough about earthworms to understand why I next wrote a book about earthworms. Mm -hmm. And, you know, everyone has sort of led to the next. But my interest has always been in writing. I just wanted to write books. And what I'm writing about was, in a way, less important than just getting to keep writing writing books. Yeah, Yeah, it's so interesting to me, too, because there's... I mean, there seems to be this really interesting divide in the nonfiction world, which are... You know, you either you're a writer's writer, like the thing that you really care about is the writing, right. or you're a subject matter expert. Yes. You know, and then so every book you write is about this, like a different take on this subject where you become the ex person. Right. And then there's like sort of the Gladwell approach, or I guess it's also sort of your approach, where the thing you really care about is the language. Yeah. And you latch onto a topic. Right. You know, for a, a window of time, where this is kind of fascinating. Yeah. I could, I could get into this I could you know I could make a book out of this right but so it's interesting to hear because like from my perspective kind of like you know trying to figure out okay like what's Amy about it's like I'm looking at this body of work I'm like she's like mad about insects and plants Uh uh and I mean I sort of am because you have to be really interested in something to want to write a book about it because you got to get married to it for you know a few years so it's not that I'm uninterested it's just that each of those topics I just saw a way in to do something interesting from a writing perspective. So like Flower Confidential is about the global flower trade. And I went, oh, I see what I can do here. I can go to, I can go to South America. I can go to Holland. I can interview these people, but then there's also some interesting history and there's a little of this and a little of that. And so like as a literary project, that sounds really interesting to me, you know? Yeah. Um, And once I'm in that world, all these other ideas start suggesting themselves. Like somebody in the flower industry mentioned something about a poisonous plant to me. And I'm like, oh, huh. You know, there's a lot of interesting people throughout history who've been killed by plants. Like this could be dark and weird and twisted and fun. (laughs) Right. So it's been that for me. Yeah. Which is amazing. So, but the real through line is it's the craft. And storytelling, uh, you know. Take me deeper into that. Well, it's just with plants. So a plant does nothing but sit there and be green, right? That's all it does. So it's when people come along and realize, oh, I can, I can kill somebody with this plant. I can make a drug. I can make money out of this plant, mm. right? It's what we do to it that makes it interesting. So they're human stories. Yeah. Um, even with a book like Wicked Plants or Wicked Bugs, where it looks really kind of lightweight, they're little 750,000-word pieces. But right. in every case, I was looking for the story. Like, I didn't care that it could kill someone. I wanted to know who it had killed, <laughs> right? So I needed a victim or a villain. Right. This couldn't be hypothetical. <laughs> exactly. So that even in the space of a couple of paragraphs, there can be a story arc. You yeah. know, a man was walking in the woods, and then, you know, yeah. and you start to build a story. 
So that's, you know, that's always been what I care about. So what, I mean, what, what's the driver for you around story? Because I'm, I'm fascinated by it also. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, like just as human beings, there's something about story that we latch onto and that, right. that, that transforms us. Yeah. Um, what is it for you? Well, I think we really need them. I mean, I think we, I think we on a very fundamental level really need them. And I think that stories help us work out for ourselves how we're going to live our lives, you know, how we're going to make moral choices or how we're going to handle what might be coming next. I mean, none of us know what's coming next, literally, right? Like we have no idea what's going to happen an hour from now. Um, but we have been thinking about it and planning and sort of scheming and contemplating. And I think a lot of that can happen in the pages of a novel or even on the screen, you know, a great movie or TV show. So, um, and for me, as I was one of those kids, I was one of those freakishly early readers. And I was one of those kids who was always in a book. I got into trouble in school for reading in class instead of (laughs) paying attention. Right. Like, so I've always been that person. So, um, I, that's like, that's the world I want to live in yeah. more than any other. So, of course, I want to get into that river and, like, splash around in it. You right. Know? Yeah. So, so what happened at five that made you know you wanted to do this? I just was, I mean, I was just so attached to books, and I was hmm. such a, a, a freakish, crazy reader. Uh, my My parents say that there were books that they read to me over and over again until I just took the book and started reading it to them. Only I couldn't read. I just had it memorized, but I would turn the page at all the <laughs> wrong great. times, you know, so on right, the wrong right, right. pages and, but I would do the whole thing from beginning to end. So that's amazing. It's I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I, I think, and probably in some ways I hate to overplay the importance of like how we were as kids because, you know, in a way it's like, well, we can't, we, we can't all go around living our lives the way we were when we were five. The world would be a terrifying place if we did, right? Indeed. But on the other hand, I think if you just come out of the, out of the gate with an interest, you'd be a fool not to follow it. You know, if you were the kid who was drawing, like my brother is a visual artist, and, mm. and he was drawing, went, put a crayon in that kid's hand, and everybody just went, well, we're done here. Like, we know. We know. Right. You'd be crazy not to pursue that thing because it's the only thing you've been working at. You know, I'm 46, and I can I can honestly say I've been working on this for for 40 plus years. But the madness in that is that we don't like for the most part. Right. Nobody does that. Yes. You know, it's interesting. I've, I've had just an amazing gift to be able to sit down with hundreds of people right now and just have these great conversations. Uh-huh. And and many of the people are, are the people who've kind of dialed into that. But but so many people just completely, they kind of know all, we all kind of know. Like, I never believe somebody who says, I have no idea what I'm interested in. It's like, right. really? Like, really, really? Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, it's like, come yeah. on, think back to when you were six. Like, we all kind of knew. Like, we had a sure. pretty solid hint. I remember sitting down with Milton Glaser, who's like this yeah. astonishing designer. And he shares how when he was six years old. He said, I knew what I wanted to do for the rest of my life when I was six. He's like, yeah. I didn't know I wanted to be a designer. Right. But I knew it was going to be art. Yeah. You know, and he's like, and I've never done anything but that since. And that is such the exception to the way right. that we pursue our lives. And I think also that it's a mistake for people to, th- to call that talent. Hmm. You know, I'm very suspicious of the word talent. And part of this is being raised by a musician who believes in practice. Yeah. You know, he doesn't believe in talent. He believes in practice and hard work. So I think that what we're born with is not so much talent, but interest. You know, there are just certain things that right f- 
right from the beginning appeal to people in a particular way. And that's interest. It doesn't have to be skill. It doesn't have to mean you're good at it. So, you know, some little kids are just very athletic, right? They're just they're running all over the place. They're climbing on things and they're very physical and like, well, okay, you're going to be a mountain climber or you're going to be a whatever. I think that's interest. Yeah. I, and I actually completely agree with that. You know, although it's, I, I wish it, I agree 98.6% <laughs> with that. I do agree. I think, you know, we are, I think that the genetic element of it for most people is for some reason we emerge and our brains are wired in a way where like when we interact with this thing, right? Uh, unlike, you know, the thousand other people, we want more of it. Exactly. You know? So we do more of it. We get, yeah. you know, like the 10,000 hours of deliberate practice in right. way faster than anyone else on the planet. And all of a sudden people say, wow, yeah. talent, so yeah. cool. Right. Um, but, but what about like that 2% of people where like no matter how hard somebody else works, yeah, they're just astonishingly at op- operating at a level of awe. That's that's like nobody else. That's on the right. Planet. Yeah, you're never going to be John Coltrane. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no. I mean, I think it's wonderful that those people are out there, right? Because they make our world such an astonishing, magical place. But um, but that's no reason not to do your thing. Yeah. Right. Exactly. That's that's no reason not to play the saxophone. No. no reason not to write a book or paint a painting. Um, no, I mean, I love it that there are people who are so far above what the rest of us are doing that all we can do is stand there and gape in admiration. Mm. That's, you know, my dad is a guitar player. He loves Wes Montgomery. He worships. He, he, he was never going to be Wes Montgomery, but that's no reason not to play yeah. every day. Yeah. yeah, apparently I'm never going to be Stevie Ray Vaughan either. But <laughs> <laughs> is that right? Oh. Man, I would yeah. like, I would, I would meet, I might actually meet the devil at the crossroads to be able to play like him. Like Stevie, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, it, but it is so interesting to me um, because we, uh, I think you're right. I think a lot of us also, you know, we look at that the two percent or the one percent or the one tenth of one percent, right? And the fact that we, you know, like we kind of say, okay. I have a deep interest, but no matter how hard I work for my whole life, I'm never going to be like that. I, I do think you're right. I think a lot of people would be like, so why bother trying? Rather than just, I just love doing this, man. That's right. I think it, you know, I think part of it is just so the daily practice of doing it, the daily uh, act of doing it. So, like, I really like to paint. I've been painting for about 10 oh, years. No yeah, yeah. I started taking oil painting classes actually more than 10 years ago. And um, I can't travel well with oils. Like when I come right. to New York, I take photographs and I paint New York from photographs when oh, I that's go so home. Cool. But when I'm in the city, like I've got a little sketchbook in my bag. And so, uh, you know, if I'd gotten here a little early, I would have sat in a cafe and just drawn pictures. Mm. And I'm not good at it. Like everybody wants to come over and look at what I'm doing. And then they look <laughs> and they're like, oh, okay, you know, <laughs> right? But that's not the point. The point right, is right. that the act of sitting and sketching is like one of the greatest things in the world. Yeah. So I think part of it is the sheer enjoyment of it, but it's not all enjoyment, right? There's a lot of hard work. Well, that's the whole thing about deliberate practice, right? Right. It's, is that the idea is it's not just it's not just the doing it that yeah. gets to the point of mastery. Right. You know, it's it's the hard, deliberate, focused on improvement practice, which almost by definition, depending on the researcher you talk to, they'll say, like, if it's enjoyable, it's not deliberate practice. Sure. But that doesn't mean that that's the only thing that you do. I mean, there, you just, the other side is you spend a certain amount of time just doing it because you love it. Yeah. And also, I think the the idea of just being a practitioner of that thing, you don't have to be the best one. You know, you can, you can be the 
to use my dad as an example, you know, you can be the guitar player who, you know, did a lot of weddings and bar mitzvahs and country clubs right. and, you know, a lot of a lot, a lot of little road gigs and, and a little bit of recording studio stuff. And, and he's never going to be Wes Montgomery, but the world needs a lot of guitar players. And yeah. he got to be one of them, you know. Yeah. So so, it's, so how do you like how do you overlay that with your approach to writing? Well, I, I've always seen myself as very much just a working writer. You know, I just, I get up in the morning and I do my work and, um, it's not real magical. I actually don't think I'm a very good writer. Um, I think that I, I have to work real hard to put pretty sentences Wait, okay, together. So when you're starting out, I can see that, but you're seven books in now, yeah. New York Times bestselling books, a number of them. Really? Did, I mean, yeah, really. I really don't think I'm a very, I, I don't think that I'm like a naturally brilliant writer. I think that it's well, just, mean, it's hard work and habits and practices, but I think I'm kind of a mediocre writer. What's the difference in your mind, like in terms of the, the creative output? Well, for me, the difference is that I've learned a lot of little tricks and tools to make it better, but they're it's a deliberate little tool bag of stuff that I have to do. So for instance, I have taught myself and I learned this from a painter. I have a friend who's a painter who, um, if you watch her paint, I've taken classes from her. And the very last thing she does is what she calls the bling layer, where she goes and she puts the bling on the painting. And what she means by that are the, are the highlights and the lowlights. So she adds in a few touches of the darkest darks and the brightest brights and sharpens a few little edges, and the whole thing just pops. It just comes mm. to life. And you have to do it at the end because with oil painting, you'd mess it up right, if you did yeah. it earlier. So I thought, oh, what is a bling layer in writing? And so for me, it's a revision that I do near the end where I add a little bit of bling on every page. I take the book one manuscript page at a time, and I look for one place where I can add some brilliant, shimmering, fantastic little word or phrase that would stop me in my tracks if you know someone else wrote yeah. it. But it's very deliberate. It doesn't just flow out. It wasn't there on the first draft. It wasn't there at all before. I had to sit down and go, make something fabulous happen on this page. Now turn the page, right? And we're gonna do we're gonna do whatever. We're gonna do thirty pages of bling a day, and that way we'll have this done in ten days. You know, it's like right. very mapped out and conscious. But have have you ever met a writer where the bling is on the page, like just out of the gate? I mean, because I, I haven't. No, 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 no. Of course not. But I just think that there are writers out there who are who are so high above me in terms of what they're doing that I recognize that I'm mm. just sort of a pedestrian working mm. on the street shoe leather kind of you know practitioner of this thing and then there's Richard Ford you mm. know <laughs> and then there's Ann Tyler and and, and they're doing is, something else right which is funny though because there will be you know like many people who will listen to this conversation they'll be like oh my god Amy Stewart if only I could write like her Huh. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I, so I think it's like everyone sort of like got their different lens. It's interesting. My approach to writing, especially books, you know, like longer form is really similar. Like f for me, first pass is larger. Like just get on, get the facts the way right. they need to be. Like yeah. make sure they're accurate the next pass, you know. And then that like final set of passes is all about, you know, like I would call it, you know, like adding, like punching it up. Right, Adding right. the bling to the page. Yeah. And it's really similar. I go through and I'm like, okay, how do we add a little more humor, a little more, you know, like pop, a little more pizzazz. So that's the type of thing where... You know, I read certain people, and I'm like, I'll, I'll laugh. Not because what they wrote was funny, but I'm just like, God, I would kill to write that sentence. Yes. 
Right. You know, it just pops so beautifully. Yeah. And it just makes me, like, my I smile just at the craft. Right. And I think to myself when I'm doing my bling pass, man, I would like to be able to, like, you know, like, I, no matter, I, I can't, I don't, I can't add enough bling yeah. to, to write like this right. person, too. Exactly. Well, see, that's, I mean, you know, bling is a little bit of a trick, right? Yeah, you right. know, it's, it, to, to me, it feels like a little bit of a cheap trick. And I don't mean cheap dismissively. I just right. mean, like, it's a thing I learned how to do. And now I can just go and deliberately do it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's funny because I was thinking, um, I, I recently sat down with uh, John Acuff. I don't know if you read mm. any of his stuff, but he's a, a similar thing. He's like, you know, he writes what he has to write, gets it all factually. And, says, and he says, you know, he loves nothing more than, than humor. Mm-hmm. He's a huge fan. He's, he speaks a ton also. And, and he was saying that a lot of what he does, he watches, you know, for every one talk that he watches to learn about, you know, like business or stage presentation, he watches like 10 or 100 stand-up comics. Yes. Loves, loves, loves to make right. people laugh. So his final pass is for humor. Right. He's like, okay, how can I take this thing, which is really kind of dry and melancholy and yeah. somber, because he's like, that's my orientation, right? and actually make it really funny. Like, And so he, he does an entire in-depth path just to try and make it as funny as possible. Right. But he'll tell you when he starts out, he's like, this is the farthest thing from funny you've ever heard. Yeah. Um, which I think a lot of people reading the final product would be like, how, how could that even be possible? I yeah. Mean. Right. And that's, that's a very hard thing, you know, I mean, because humor is just moving so fast, yeah. right? You almost have to stand on the corner with a butterfly net and try to catch it as it, as it zooms by. So it is hard to be sitting in your room working very deliberately trying to make funny things happen. Because, right. Yeah. And it's also because you're trying to do it in your voice and then on the page without sort of like the nuance right. and all the communication. Like, I was listening to uh, recently uh, a conversation with Alex Bloomberg, who now you know is doing yes. this amazing podcast right. and was at yeah. This American Life for so long. And, and he was saying that one of the big shifts that he made in radio was sort of when he realized that you have to write a script and then you have to read it in a way which tries to make it sound like it was actually you naturally speaking, but it never will be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so it's sort of like this interesting thing that you try and do writing also, where right. I, don't, I don't know, you know, my approach is I, I try and get as close to what I think is my natural speaking voice as possible, but you know it never really is. Yeah, no, but it should be someone's. I always felt um, like my last three books, so Wicked Plants and Wicked Bugs and Drunken Botanists, were in the third person. Mm. So that was new for me because my first three had been written in the first person. So I always felt like, well, there is a narrator, and that person, that creature has a voice, and I have to write in that creature's voice. Like even when it's the third person, it should feel like a human being with Mm. opinions is talking. Yeah. You know? No, completely agree. It's fascinating to me also that with your deep interest in story that you waited until the seventh book <laughs> to go into fiction. And even then, it's a, you know, it's historical fiction. So a lot of it is, is based on truths. Right. <laughs> well, I tried. Uh, between almost every nonfiction book is a failed novel. <laughs> Take me deeper into this because I know that I'm like, I have, uh, I'm on my third nonfiction book and I have so much fiction in me that I haven't even dared to try failing at yet. Right, right. Yeah, somebody said, you know, uh, novels are like waffles. You have to throw out the first one. <laughs> and uh, 
So, yeah, because that's what I read. You know, I, if given the choice, if I didn't have, uh, like, work-related reading to do, it would all be fiction. So, um, so I, so I always, I, I think I just felt like fiction was the deep end of the pool, and I just didn't dare, you know, I didn't yeah. dare try it. So, um, so yeah, there, there are several half-started and completed novels that will never right. see the light of day that, well, maybe my agent saw them and said, eh, <laughs> you know, don't quit your day job or, or the editor or, or, or whoever. Do you think it's harder than nonfiction? For me, it is because I figured nonfiction out. Mm. So now I know I can sit down with someone and I do this to people constantly. I'm always telling people to write books. Um, and I can, I can sit down with somebody who I've never met over dinner and pretty much do their book proposal for them. I'm <sighs> like, here's how we're going to structure this. And this is how this is going to work. And you're right. going to need to do this and this and da, 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 da. No one has ever written the book that I've told them to write. So I'm actually, I'm, I'm terrible at talking people into writing books. But I can completely, in my head, put a nonfiction book together and go, okay, I understand how this is going to work. And yeah, I can get this done in two years, and here's exactly how I'm going to go about it. And it feels entirely right. comfortable and normal. Whereas with fiction, you know, it's so much about the voice, and it's about really the poetry of the thing, and it's about sort of casting a spell on some on a reader and so that they'll get hooked in and want to stay hooked in and stay in that world. And when it comes time to fix it or make it better, there's no end to the possible ways yeah. to do that. There's no restrictions on it at all. So in that way, it kind of does feel like the deep end of the pool. It's like the ocean, like it's just infinite. Yeah. I yeah. yeah I, it's so interesting to hear you say that. Um, yeah, I, I think one of the things that also stops me is that if I'm writing something that's nonfiction, you know, I always have, the, if somebody doesn't like it to a certain extent, that's fine. You know, it's a matter of voice, taste, whatever I mean. Right. But, but I also have that, that extra thing where it's like, well, but the fact is the fact, you know, yes. so you may not like the fact. Right. Whereas, you know, if you've created everything, yes. you know, it's all if on the you. world, right, you know, if like the world is bad or the characters aren't interesting enough or not, you know, this, this scenario didn't play out right. It's right. like, yeah. There's no defense to, to that, but I didn't do the job I wanted to do. Right. That's hard to take. <laughs> yes. And and readers respond completely to the creative work, whereas mm. when you're writing nonfiction, especially like not like memoir, but like a topic, like, you know, like what I've done, they're responding to the subject matter. Yeah. So if they're interested in the global flower industry, they don't care so much exactly how it was written. No one ever asked me anything about my writing process mm. ever the whole time I was out talking about those six books. They only ever asked about the subject. Right. Yeah. They would be like, tell me about the flower market in Amsterdam. So great. I mean, I'm happy to talk about that, but it's like, they're not paying attention to the writing, but that's mm. kind of all there is in fiction in a way. Yeah. Such a different world. Um, yeah. So I, I want to play with the, how you went from writing these six books to then deciding, okay, it's time historical fiction. Right. Um, you, from what I understand, you were, you it basically was, and, and, and I guess it tracks what you said earlier, which is sort of like each book revealed the nugget that would right. turn into the next one. So yeah. take me there. Well, so for this, I was researching Drunken Botanist and right. um, I was writing about a gin smuggler named Henry Kaufman. And I just thought, as I would do with anything, I just thought, well, I better see what else this Henry Kaufman did. Because if it turns out that he was like, a senator from the great state of New York, I might want to put that in there, right? It becomes a different kind of story if right. we know something else about him. So I was just doing that basic kind of due diligence, and I turned up a story in the New York Times from 100 years ago, 1915, 
about some guy named Henry Kaufman, maybe not the same guy, I never figured it out, who ran his car into this horse and buggy being driven by these three sisters, which turned into an escalated crazy conflict with lots of bricks and bullets and kidnapping threats, and the whole thing got out of control. And it was like an amazing story. But, you know, that happens all the time with research, right? right? So I'm very accustomed to turning up bizarre old newspaper articles and going, wow, the world was really weird back then, wasn't it? And then just moving on. Um, but in this case, I read this thing and I'm like, oh, this is kind of amazing. So then I started digging a little more. What else can I find out now? I had a few more names and I start pulling more out of just the digitized newspapers about the cop sisters and about this case. And, then, and pretty soon the whole day has gone by and I'm just doing this. And my husband came home, we own a bookstore, and he runs the store. And he came home from the store, and as he was every day at that time, he would say, well, what plant did you work on today? And I was like, oh, no plants today, but you're not going to believe these sisters. This is incredible. This has got to be a novel. I think this is a series of novels. I think I have to do this. Look at all this stuff. And I had all this stuff spread out on my desk. And and he said, well, you know, we have an Ancestry.com account at the bookstore, so we can look them up in census records. We can find birth certificates. And it just went crazy from there so, so but you're still working on the prior book at that point also right yeah i had to get back to drunken botanist right. yeah 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 i <laughs> so, was but, i was wrapping it up i was very near the end right yeah. but this hooked you enough where you're like okay this i need to really focus a lot of energy on right this. so anytime i had a little spare time i would dig a little more um, i hired a genealogist out in new jersey to start pulling things out of courthouse records and you right. know i sort of just kept picking at it whenever i could um, and what happened is over the course of a few months of that, I really started to piece together the whole lives of these three sisters. And, you know, no one has written about them. I, at first I thought, well, someone's written a book about them. I'll order the book and we'll just see. Nothing. So this is all primary research. You know, these are these people were completely forgotten about. They're nobodies. And, and it's like a hundred-year-old research, which right. <laughs> yeah. it's not like you can just flip open the paper or Google it's not super easy. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of microfilm in library basements and a lot of, anyway, I just, so I got really sucked into them and I really f connected with these women as real people and they started to really matter to me. And it started to really matter that everyone had forgotten about them mm. and that I found them again. So I, I actually came to feel a, a powerful sense of personal obligation to not let them go. Hmm. And I thought, I'm going to write this book, and I'm not going to let anybody talk me out of it. No one's, I'm not going to, you know, editors, agents, I'm not going to let anyone tell me no. I'm just going to do it, which is kind of a scary thing for someone who's used to having the next book contract lined up and ready to go the minute the last book is done. I said, no book contract. I'm just going to spend a year or two. I'm going to do this. I'm going to, you know, live off my savings. And... Oh, really? So this was oh, yeah. sold after it was done then? Right. Yeah. Wow. Nobody was paying me to do this. No one was telling me it was a good idea. It was just passion, like a burning question and, and a sense yeah. of obligation to like tell the story. A sense of obligation to them. Huh. And also this feeling of, I felt like I'm not going to get another one of these. Really? Yeah. I thought this could be the best idea I'll ever have. Huh. So I can't, I can't put it down because as a nonfiction writer, particularly, um, I'm working off of existing things that are floating around in the culture out there, you know, the global flower industry. Well, that's a real thing that's out there that people know about and other people have written about, and I'm going to glom onto it and make a book out of it. But this is something that belonged exclusively to me. 
No one else knew about yeah. the cops. And I thought, this came to me. This didn't come to anybody else. It came to me. And I just, I thought I'd be an idiot to not pursue it. And I decided right away that it was, that there were going to be more novels. It wasn't just going to be one novel. So I really, at the age of, you know, like in my mid forties, pretty much, it, it was one of those almost kind of midlife crisis kind of things. I just said, I'm going to do this with my life. And if nobody wants to pay me to do it, I'll come up with another way to pay the bills. Mm. But this is the thing I'm going to do next. So uh, it, it was a big deal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it sounds yeah. like a really big deal. Yeah. Um, because also there's an expectation. You know, there's an expectation from your readers. There's an expectation from the industry that like this is the type of thing that you do and that, oh, you write yeah. and that you're known for and that yes. people want to buy from you. Right. And then you kind of have to step outside of that and say, well, that may be the case. Yeah. But I'm still going to do what I need to do. Oh, I know. I mean, when Drunken Botanist came out, I was already deep into the research. Mm -hmm. And I went on this huge tour. And I do a lot of speaking, you know, outside of the book tour kind of stuff. So, of course, everyone asked what your next book is. And at the time, I couldn't really say that much. I needed to keep it a little bit under wraps. But I just said, well, I can't tell you, but it's a novel. And people would kind of go, oh. (laughs) <laughs> oh, oh, you know, like there was no gasp right, of excitement. Like, but you had such a good career. <laughs> right, like you're doing a what? Yeah, yeah. So it was a risk. Okay, so which also brings up the other question, which is it? It's this starts out as as a factual research project. So mm-hmm. at what point do you decide that actually this is going to be historical fiction rather than uh, you know a nonfiction accounting? Well, I decided that on day one. Literally that first day, I was Mm. like, this is a novel. And the reason is, I've done enough nonfiction to know that with nonfiction, there is this so what question that Mm. has to be answered. So if I were to say, um, I'm going to write a a book of nonfiction about the first woman to fly solo across Canada. People would go, so what? Eh, what else you got? Like Canada, eh, you know, whatever. So there's that problem. You know, I could tell the story and I think people would go, "Mm." but then also the other problem is what kind of nonfiction book is it? Because there's lots of gaps in the historical record. I don't know what they said and did every day. There's months that go by where I have no idea what happened because I don't have a newspaper article to tell me. I don't have their diaries or letters. So what am I going to put in the rest of the book? It, it felt to me like it would have to be a lot of filler about the time period and the location and that it would start to feel like it would be one of those books that was kind of like, you know, this would have been a really nice magazine article, mm. you know? So there was that reason why I didn't want to do it as nonfiction. But then the other reason was the story just felt so fun to me. It felt like a caper. I mean, as <laughs> much as these sisters were in danger, and they really were, they fought back and they were, you know, with guns and they, and so I just immediately thought, oh, three sisters, like how much fun is that? And look how plucky they are with their revolvers. Three pretty badass sisters. Right, right. So it really just felt like an adventure and Mm. it felt like the kind of book I like to read. You know, I just had this idea of like, this can be fun. It can be kind of weirdly light at the same time that all these dark things are happening. There can be this wonderful sort of bubbly, frothy um, giddy kind of moment in it somehow. Uh, so I just had that feeling about it. Like I want to have right. fu- more fun with this than I can have as nonfiction. So, and but how, how do you balance that with you know, what you said was this sense of obligation to do these, these women's stories, right? Yeah, that's tricky. Um, 
I wonder, I think about that a lot. Yeah. I, I often wonder, like, well, what would Constance Cop think if she could read this? Yeah. You know, she, she'd probably roll her eyes and tell me all the things <laughs> that I got wrong. So what I, the, where I finally came to with that was that what I really wanted to give readers was the same sense of excitement that I felt as I was f- digging them up, as I was finding all uh-huh. of this. So I just wanted other people to have the same emotion about the Cop Sisters that I was having. And like how you manufacture that emotion in other people, there's probably a lot of different ways to do that. So, yeah, it's odd. Like, so here are these three women who are, of course, no longer with us, and yet I do spend a lot of time wondering, like, what would you think if you mm. saw the fictional version of you that's now out in the world? I'm sure it would make you feel like I turned you into a, to paper dolls, you know, or puppets. Yeah. But you also, because um, you were able to track down some of their like descendants, yes. a couple of generations. Right? Yeah, what, yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, I found, um, I found a, a grandnephew. Hmm. So the three sisters had a brother. And so the, the brother's grandson. So he never really knew them, but he grew up hearing a lot of stories about his three crazy aunts, mm-hmm. you know. So, like, he was the first one I got in touch with, and he was great. He was like, oh, yeah, they were like the Charlie's Angels of the 1910s. I've always thought somebody <laughs> should make a movie about them. <laughs> That's too funny. Yeah, so he was really into it. But his stories, you know, he was a little kid hearing those stories. So so I had his memories to go on. But then um, the youngest sister, Florette, I was able to interview her son, who is who is quite elderly and living in New Jersey, and I tracked him down. So here's somebody who knew one of the sisters intimately because he was raised by her. And then the middle sister, Norma, his aunt Norma, lived with them for a little while when he was a kid. So he has clear, accurate, vivid memories of what kind of person Norma was in old age. And I can't even tell you what it was like to, to go and sit to know even today, like right now, even knowing that there is a person on the planet who knew my characters and he's walking around right now with his head full of memories of them mm. is so bizarre to me because there is this sense in which there's the real people, the real cop sisters, but then there's my fictional version right. of them. And sometimes I get a little lost going back and forth between the two of them. You know, I'll get sucked into who they were as real people for a while. And then I'll have to take a deep breath and go, okay, so let's go back to my cardboard cutouts that I made. Right, and exactly, let's see how exactly. we can how we can work with that. Yeah. So have you given them a copy of the, uh, the finished book? Oh, yeah. And, yeah, they've read it. And <laughs> they have been great. They've yeah. been so great about it. I, I was so nervous. You know, I kept yeah, over I and would imagine. Totally. Like right. over and over again, I kept saying to them, I can only imagine how weird it would be if a stranger got in touch yeah. with me and said, I'm writing a book about your great grandmother. That would be very weird and uncomfortable. So I'm wanting to, you know, I kept trying to ask and check in and manage their feelings about it and, you know, do all that kind of stuff. But they've been great. They've, they've read it. They've said nothing but nice things about it. Um, Florette's son actually was pretty thoughtful about it. Like, oh, it was really interesting to see where you stuck with the true story and where you went into fiction. Like, he got it that right. this, is, this is not your real mother. This is a, a fictional version that, that vaguely resembles your mom. And see, I had been burned with this before. I had um, 
earlier with another nonfiction book written about a real life person. And the family, I thought I did a, a fine job and I thought I made him a very interesting person, but the family was really pretty hurt really? by how I talked about him. And I felt terrible about it. Mm. I felt like, you know, I thought I was super clear about, you know, what I was doing and like, I'm just going to tell about this one little part of your dad's life, not his whole life. And it's, it's a, it's a tough story and it's this and that, but I didn't do enough of that to make them Feel, feel okay, and they didn't like the version of their dad that they saw. So they felt almost like that you, they were sandbagged to a certain extent? Or, yeah, yeah. Which... That's uh, got to be so tough for you as, right. as a writer. And I'm just not that person. Like, I just won't write about something if I think it's going to hurt yeah. somebody. You know? Um, so, yeah, I was very nervous. I mean, I knew I was going to write this anyway, but right. I would have felt horrible if the family had been upset about it. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and I guess like you said also, so much of it is, you know, probably just, and, and that, I'm curious too, like how much more expectation setting did you do this time around having had that experience with the right. earlier book? A lot more. I bet. A lot more. A lot of emails where I would very clearly spell out like, you know, what I, the, I would say things to them like, this is kind of like when somebody takes a book and makes a movie out of it. And they have to change it to make it into a good movie. Right. I have no choice but to take their real life and make big changes to it. And I'll do my best to explain those changes in the back. But this is not going to look like your family. Um, I have to let bad things happen to people. You know, I'm not going to turn your grandfather into a into a psycho serial killer, I promise. You know, I have a lot of respect for them. But at the same time... In fiction, in TV, and in movies. Stuff happens. We have to let stuff happen <laughs> yeah. to people. Yeah. And I also explained to them, there's more people involved in this than just me. There's an editor. You know, right. there's a big publishing house. There's going to be book critics out there. Like, this is going to start to belong to a lot of other people pretty quickly. So, you know, there's a lot of people who are going to have input. And t there's going to be a lot of talking about yeah. it that it, happens. Which is, okay, so this is really interesting for me also because... You know, you wrote this book because it was a thing that you couldn't not write. Mm -hmm. um, and largely, it sounds like on spec, basically. Totally on um, spec. So then when you're, you're like, okay, I'm ready. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, here's my agent, here's my editor. Like, right. You hand it over. Yeah. What's going through your mind at that point? Well, um, the first thing that happened is my agent, ha uh, we went through another, many more rounds of editing once my agent got hold of it, yeah. which was great. She read it and she put it in the hands of some other readers, like other literary agents and just interns and whoever it is that agents have access to. So that was cool. I got like this whole other round of revisions to do that I really needed. Um, I had also hired an editor, so I'd had a mm. terrific freelance editor, a really good person. Um, so anyway... It went through some more polishing, but when it was finally time to send it out, I feel weird even telling this story because it's it's uh, it's such a great story um, that it feels kind of it's almost like winning the lottery. It feels sort of uncomfortable to just tell it, but I guess I'll just tell it, which is that um, when it went out, um, it went out to eighteen um, editors all at once on like a Friday afternoon. And I expected everyone to reject it. You know, I just sort of thought, okay, well, this is the first 18, and they'll all say no, and then we'll start on the next tier. That's really what I thought. I thought everyone was going to be like, oh, yeah, we just don't see you as a novelist, and this kind of doesn't work. As a no what made you think this was even a book? Like, really, that was how I felt about it that afternoon. That's where I was. I was like, well, okay, well, I'm sure that no one will ever get back to us, and six weeks will go by, and we'll think of plan B. Um, and on Sunday morning, this editor at, at Houghton, Mifflin Harcourt sent an email saying, 
oh my God, I love this. I can't believe it. I've been looking for something like this. Uh, we have to do this. I would buy it today if I could. I'm, I've just emailed it to my whole team. Everybody's going to have to have it read for our meeting tomorrow. You're going to get a call. Thank you so much. I can't believe how great this is. And I, that, that's just insane. You know, it was just, um, I just thought someone wants to finance my midlife crisis. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> It just felt like I had made this decision that I'm going to do this no matter what. This is, is enough work that I'm going to still be doing it. It's going to take me somewhere into my 50s to get this thing finished. I've committed a big chunk of my life to it. I don't know how I'm going to pay the bills when this happens. And Houghton came along and said, I'll tell you who's going to pay the bills. We're going to pay the bills, and you're going to sit there and do this thing. We believe 100% in this crazy idea you had. We think this is the best idea in the world. That is that is an insane, crazy feeling. It was remarkable. I mean, it, it was truly this life-changing, transformative moment to have someone else, someone in a position to do something. That's <laughs> not my grandma who loves me, but like, <laughs> right? <laughs> to come along and go, yes, you made the right decision. Yeah. I mean, how incredibly validating. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculously validating. Yeah. Yeah. So once you actually do that... Uh, you know, and that's because then, you know, the, the way the book industry works, it's not tomorrow that the book comes out. Right. Um, do you start to sort of, in your mind, do anything? And as this is because I'm like, I'm a writer, but I'm also, I'm an entrepreneur and mm-hmm. and I love marketing and psychology of human behavior too. Right, which, so yeah. I'm, I'm the weirdo writer that actually likes marketing the book yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. Knowing that you sort of have, you know, sort of a, a readership that you built over, you know, more than a decade with mm-hmm. certain expectations now you know this is actually going to, this is real, this is legit, this is going to come out. Yeah. In your mind, is there any work that you start doing to set expectations of this longstanding readership about sort of like the nature of the book that's coming? Or are you, in your mind, are you just like, my job is just to write the best damn book I can write right now and put it out there and let the universe do what it needs to do? Oh, no. No, I had a lot of work to do. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I wish that I could just outsource this to the universe and yeah. let someone else take care of it. No, I as soon as as soon as my publisher kind of gave me the go ahead, like yes, you can say what the title is, you can say that this is the book. You know, there's there's always this moment where yeah. it's like let's not talk about this yet. Right. Let's finish the edits. Let's get it. Let's get this officially done. But so once that came around, um, yeah, I really had to start talking about it to people. So I was out on the road doing drunken botanist events. I was at botanical gardens and science museums and garden clubs and they'd ask what the next book was about and I had to pretty quickly develop my little two sentence rap about it and hope to get this level of excitement from this audience who'd been used to me answering that question with something like my next book is about all the plants we turn into booze and everyone (laughs) would go yay we're gonna have cocktail you know and it was like fun so yeah, I really had to start right away, kind of talking to people and seeing if anyone was even going to come along. Yeah, if any of my readers were going to come. What along. was your sense? How are people responding? Well, my sense so far has always been like, oh, so some people are being nice and saying that they want to read it. You know, the problem with social media is that 
you think a lot of people are interested in something and it was really like 12 people, right? <laughs> but 12 really vocal people. 12 people are very excited about this and they said so on a blog. Um, so I really wasn't sure. And my first official book tour event was just a few days ago in Atlanta. And I, I was at a book at the Decatur Book Festival and I asked the audience to raise their hand if they'd read any of my other books and half the people had. Mm. And I was like, wow, they're willing to, you know, they'll do this. The thing is that, of course, a lot of people who are interested in gardening are reading fiction. Of course they are. So, you know, I think some of those folks will come along. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and based on just what I've seen, you know, from the early receptions, it sounds like a lot of them are. I think um, so. I want to switch gears a little bit, but not so much because it feels like a pretty organic thing just with sort of a small amount of time we have left. You mentioned that uh, you and your husband have a bookstore in yes. Eureka. Yes. I'm kind of fascinated by what's happening in the industry these these days. What and and I've I've never actually had the opportunity to sit down with somebody who owns their own like indie bookstore. Oh, yeah. What's it like? I mean, because <laughs> you know, there's all these you know, there's the movies and the TV pictures of you know, there's someone who just loves books and they right. curate this astonishingly cool collection and everyone comes and yeah. you talk about books and you smell the pages when they come out. And right. What's the truth on the ground of owning a bookstore <laughs> these days? Well, um, so I should say that our bookstore is a mix of new, used, and rare. Okay. Um, and my husband's really a rare book dealer. So he's, you know, he's dealing with a lot of kind of really high-end collectible stuff. At the same time, we've got all the new, you know, new hot fiction right. and whatever. So we're doing a little bit of everything. Um, in the new book world, I think... Um, First of all, the thing about owning a bookstore is that you do all the just dirt jobs that no one wants to do. You know, I, I remember right when we bought the store, I was walking through the store with like those yellow rubber cleaning gloves mm -hmm. and a bucket and a mop and a toilet plunger. And, and somebody stopped and said, excuse right. me, are you the owner? And I'm like, of course I'm the owner. <laughs> Who else? Who else would be doing this right now? So, you know, owning... And by the way, I'm also a New York Times bestselling author. Right. Yeah, that did not come out. Um, so, you know, a lot of owning a bookstore is bookkeeping and yeah. personnel stuff and just garbage that no one wants to deal with. Um, I notice you've got Elizabeth Gilbert's book yeah. on your shelf over here, right. Big Magic. And I just about jumped up and down and screamed out loud when I read her chapter on shit sandwiches. Yeah. Like, whatever passion you have in your life, there's going to be a shit sandwich you have to eat along with it. And it's just, do you like that particular flavor of shit sandwich? Mm -hmm. So the shit sandwich with owning a bookstore is bookkeeping, accounting, um, personnel stuff, homeless people hanging out in your store. You know, like, there's all this stuff that has nothing to do with the books. Uh, the light fixture goes out, and it takes forever to get an electrician in. You know, it's yeah. that stuff, it's, right? It's the small business, you know, like, it's owner's stuff, right? Right. Yeah. But is there a magic to it also? Is is there the layer of like the sort of like the projection that most people would, would think where there's this sort of there is this magical texture well, to of, the community of course. around yeah, it? Yeah, no. It's I mean, right. It's the, the the day is full of fantastic moments if you're lucky enough to be the one up at the counter when yeah. it happens. I mean, we just had a wedding in our bookstore. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, kids come in and so we have like wonderful interactions with like, you know, little kids who are finding their favorite book for the right. first time and can't stop talking about it. And, you know, you give them a little piece of paper and let them write a shelf talker that, you know, so oh, you can have awesome. like the eight year old that's shelf great. talker, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, 
So, so yeah, it is wonderful being able to put the right book in people's hands. And one thing I wasn't prepared for, um, and this happened on literally one of the first days we owned the store. I, I was behind the counter, and a, a guy came in, and he said, Hi, I would like to bring my son to the Lord, and I'm looking for a book that will help me do that. And I just thought, wow, if I'm standing behind this counter... People are going to come at me with everything, right? Like every human experience. And they are going to expect me to be prepared to help them with that. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I, of course, had absolutely no idea what book to... <laughs> I was frantically looking around for someone else to help. <laughs> right. I'm like, oh, I, I only work here. This is my first day. <laughs> I don't know. I don't You're know. Like, well, the owner will be back in a couple That's of right. hours. <laughs> Let's ask the boss. That's too funny. You know, somebody comes in wanting a do-it-yourself divorce book, right. and they want a paper bag because they don't want anyone to see them walking out yeah. with it because it's a small town and they haven't told anyone they're getting divorced yet. You know, it's that, and that's every day. And yeah. it's just like, wow. It's like almost like a bartender to a certain extent, but instead that's of like right. you dishing out the advice, it's like you have to you have to provide the book that's going to dish out the advice. Yes, and you have to be the like super confidential. you got to keep everyone's, you know, people come in asking for, erotica they come in asking for sex manuals right. and you know you're like okay they're right over here right yeah <laughs> in the whisper part of the store yes yeah I'm, I'm fascinated by the book industry because you know like five years ago everyone was saying well uh, you know indie bookstores are going to be gone and in fact the big box stores are going to be gone and everything's going digital and and it looks like the latest information that i've seen is actually that digital has actually flattened out in the last year mm. and it seems like Great indie bookstores, great like curated bookstores are actually doing fine from what I've seen. Yeah, we're doing great. Yeah. We're we're up every year over the year before. You know, people love to spend time in bookstores and I think they're starting to get the message that you can't just spend time here. You need to buy something. Yeah. That's how we stay open. Yeah, you have to support them. Um, yeah. I'm a huge fan of that. And I, I'm also, uh, I mean, when I travel, because I read a ton of books simultaneously. I don't know about you. Yeah. So, you know, I, I take it something electronic because it's a right. whole lot easier to travel with a Kindle yeah. than with five books in my right. bag. Yeah. But given the choice, you know, it's 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 funny. I'm, I'm in a position now where I'm sure you are too, to a certain extent with, with what you do. I'm offered a lot of advanced copies. Yes. And, you know, along with that is always, you know, like, do you want it in paper or can we just send you the, you know, the, the right. digital galley? And I'm yeah. like, can I get it in paper? Because <laughs> there's something about the feeling of a book in my hands. Yeah. You know, like just like laying back in like an old chair. Right. You know, and the smell of the pages as you turn them, that's, that adds to the experience for me. Yeah. Well, I think the challenge going forward, and this is more to the publishing industry, is, is to figure out how to enter the 21st century with the way books are just ordered and handled and shipped yeah. and sold. You know, you get any group of booksellers together in a room and you get them talking about um, shipping procedures, uh, invoices, um, returns. There are so many things that are very boring accounting issues that eat up. You wouldn't believe how much time. And it's only because publishers have not figured out a 21st century way yeah. to handle stuff that is so easy in every other part of our lives. And then suddenly when you're a bookstore ordering and receiving and, and shipping books, you're back to a, um, a Byzantine bureaucratic nightmare that takes up time that we could be spending out with customers selling books. So there's some important changes that need to come along with papers doing well, then let's 
let's improve how we do everything else with these paper books so that it's it's seamless and efficient and everyone can go back to selling books. Yeah. Yeah. So the name of this is Good Life Project. So uh, if I offer that phrase out to you, to live a good life, what does it mean to you? Now what it means to me to live a good life is to actually be a good person to other people. I've actually been feeling lately that I've been spending too much time making my own life better. <laughs> and, that, and that I've gotten a little bit too self-focused. You know, I've gotten very focused on, oh, I need to exercise a little more and I need to get a little more sleep and I need to work a little smarter. And I've realized that I've kind of stopped thinking about other people. You know, I, whether that means I've stopped being that person that you call when you need help moving, you know? I'm just like not that person who shows up at 8 o'clock on a Saturday morning to help you move or whatever. So I think kind of my latest thing I've been thinking about is like, how can I lead a good life in terms of doing more good for the people around me? Maybe not being so caught up in (laughs) doing good for myself. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining in this week's conversation. You know, if you've actually stayed till this point in the conversation, I'm guessing there's a pretty good bet that you've gotten something out of this episode, some some nugget, some idea. If that is right and you feel like sharing, then by all means, go ahead. We love when you share these conversations and get the word out. And if you wouldn't mind, I would so appreciate if you would just take a few seconds, jump onto iTunes or use your app, And just give us a quick rating or review. When you do that, it helps get the word out, helps let more people know about the conversations we're hosting here, and it gives us all the ability to spread the word and make a bigger difference in more people's lives. As always, thank you so much for your kindness, your wisdom, and your attention. Wishing you a fantastic rest of the week. I'm Jonathan Field, signing off for Good Life Project. Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.